You're listening to Governance 360, a link group podcast hosted by me, Lindsay Dowd. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to the next Link podcast. And the subject for today is corporate governance. As well as our internal share plan expert, Tristan Adams, I'm delighted that we're joined today by Carla Walsham. Cara is a managing associate at the specialist law firm Tapestry Compliance, who specialise in governance and employee share plans in particular. So welcome, Carla. Thank you. And I wonder if to start with you, you could perhaps tell us a little bit more about your role and also about Tapestry. Great, thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm a managing associate at Tapestry. I've been there for nearly six years now. Um, so as Lindsay said, we're a law firm that specialise in employee and executive incentive arrangements um, with a particular focus at the moment on corporate governance. So that's what I'm talking about today. Tapestry are an award-winning law firm. So we're ranked top tier in both Chambers and Legal 500, which we're very proud of. Um, and yes, yeah, so I'll be talking about uh, the corporate governance changes we've seen over the past year. Thank you. So I think um, you're going to kick off by talking generally a little bit more information about the Corporate Governance Code and also the IA principles. Sure. Okay, so let's start with the Corporate Governance Code, which is applicable to all companies with a premium listing in the UK. So it was released in July 2018, but came into effect at the start of 2019, so this year. But it applies to accounting periods beginning on or after 1 January 2019. So that's those to be reported on from 2020. So a lot of clients preparing for their 2020 DRR are looking at this now, and particularly those taking their policy back next year, they're looking at this now. So that's the Corporate Governance Code. Then linked to those, there's the Investment Association Principles of Remuneration. So they're dated November 2018, and they provide lots of guidance on interpreting and applying the Corporate Governance Code. So companies are required to try to give effect to the majority of those provisions from January this year. But if that's not possible because of when the policy goes back or when the report is being voted on, we understand that the IA will consider a comply or explain approach on smaller points until compliance can be achieved. And the IA have a traffic light system in place and they do what they call amber top non-compliant remuneration policies that are being voted on this year. So the IA want the purpose of these principles that they've brought out is to facilitate um, investors taking a more active approach to companies' remuneration. So the kind of gentle guidance they were giving before perhaps wasn't working. So they've got these formalised principles to back up the code to try and force action sooner. Thank you. So um, my understanding is we're, we're looking at some significant changes here as a result of the code and the principles. And I wonder if you could please talk us through how those are going to work. Sure. So the Corporate Governance Code is broad, um, and I won't be talking about all of it today, but the types of things it covers are things like changes to vesting periods, post-employment shareholding requirements, overriding discretion of the remuneration committee. Um, there's changes to lever provisions in there. There's changes to malice and clawback, pay limits, performance conditions. It also covers things like pensions, um, dividends, settlement provisions, and lots more. But in today's session, I'm going to um, focus on some of the biggest changes we've seen impacting share plan specifically. So we're going to look at malice and clawback, overriding discretion, and the post-employment um, shareholding periods. 
That's great. So starting with Malice and Clawback, so these are concepts that have been around for quite a while. Um, so what exactly is going to be changing? Yeah, they've been around for a while now. And just to recap, obviously Malice, we're talking about pre-vest reduction of awards and Clawback, we're talking about post-vest uh, recovery of an award. So they have been around for a while, but um, investors feel that it's been a box ticking exercise. Companies have introduced them, but haven't really given the triggers much thought or the process. So now there's this shift in focus in both the code and the IA principles, moving from a tick box exercise to yes, we've got it in place to really thinking about is it enforceable? What will your process be if you try to enforce it? Um, and what would you be able to enforce it against? So turning first to the changes in relation to the triggers, the code and the guidance for the first time provide a list of triggers to companies to think about including in their policies. So this list includes payments based on erroneous or misleading data, misconduct, misstatement of accounts, serious reputational damage and corporate failure. Um, in our FTSE 100 review, which is a review that Tapestry do each year on what companies are reporting about malice and clawback, we can see uh, that these are the most common triggers being used. So in our report this year, we found that 98 of the FTSE 100 now disclose malice or clawback provisions in their DRR. So only two companies not reporting malice or clawback. And the reasons those two don't is because they don't actually have to comply to the same level of reporting because of where they're incorporated. So that's the reason those two companies are getting away with it. The most common triggers that have been used by companies in the last two years are four of those that are listed in the Corporate Governance Code. So that's the payments based on erroneous or misleading data, misconduct, misstatement of accounts and serious reputational damage. The new trigger that the code identifies is corporate failure. And this year we've seen six companies already include that in their director's remuneration report. So the IA principles have emphasised that the triggers shouldn't just be those listed in the code. They need to be those that are most appropriate for that company. So we're seeing companies go back to the design stage reconsider their triggers, really thinking about what's relevant for their business rather than just saying, yep, we've got misconduct and we've got misstatement. So what a mining company might have as a trigger, what's appropriate might be completely different to what a hospitality company choose to have as a trigger. So the mining company might be interested in linking a trigger to health and safety, something like number of deaths on sites or injuries recorded, where that wouldn't be responsible for the appropriate sorry, for the hospitality company. So that's what we're seeing in relation to triggers, companies kind of revisiting them and seeing what's right for them. So I think what we're really, uh, what, you, what I'm taking from what you're saying is that we're making malice and clawback much more meaningful and really introducing some accountability, which perhaps wasn't there uh, fully before. Yeah. So um, moving on to the process and enforcement, what changes can we expect to see there? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's another key focus of the IA principles stemming from recent case law in this area. So the Lloyd's Daniels case is a key one where com the company um, were unable to operate malice or clawback. So investors want to make sure not just have you got these provisions in your documents. Now they're looking for you to demonstrate that they are legally watertight. So the IA principles to aid enforceability have set out these requirements the terms need to be clearly set out, stating how and when they'll be applied. 
They require companies to consider what enforcement powers they have and how they can implement malice and clawback effectively. They require companies to ensure that the malice and clawback terms are set out clearly and accepted by executives at the time of grant, so hardwiring the need to accept the malice and clawback provisions. Um, It requires companies to have consistent remuneration policy, plan rules and employee documentation. So the malice and clawback provisions should be consistent across the award types and the documentation. There should be no argument that there's any contradiction in any way. And that companies need to have a clear process for assessing and applying that malice and clawback, including in relation to any exercise of discretion. So in our FTSE 100 report this year, interestingly, we saw 67 companies choosing to apply the same triggers to both their LTIP awards and their bonus plans. So a trend towards moving towards consistency, which is what the IA are looking for. We've also uh, seen lots of companies include an acceptance process now to onerous terms. So a lot of companies moving to an online portal that allows them to click and accept malice and clawback up front. Um, A lot of companies are doing that using a standalone malice and clawback policy. So outside of their plan rules, drafting a malice and clawback policy to draw out the detail of kind of how that can be applied, what the process is, etc. We saw the duration in our FTSE 100 report as standard of kind of two years across the board of how long companies are going to apply that for. So that's what we've seen in terms of the process and changes to enforceability. Thank you. So real tightening up, I think, happening here. And I think it's very interesting as well, the point about ensuring that executives have to accept what's going to be in the the contractual terms that are going to relate to them for malice and clawback. Yeah, and I think, interestingly, obviously the code only applies to executives, Mm. but companies might choose from an enforceability perspective to make it much deeper into the business. So if you're putting a process in place to get your executives to click and accept, why not have that for deeper into your organisation? Yeah, thank you. So I think the second issue uh, we're looking at this afternoon are the changes that apply to overriding discretion. Yes, so that's another new requirement um, in the Corporate Governance Code this year. So these are provisions that give the Remuneration Committee discretion to override formulaic outcomes. So the idea is is you put the formula in and the performance conditions based on the formula say that it's going to pay out at, let's say, 100, where in the current market, it wouldn't be right for it to pay out at 100 and they want to use their discretion to be able to say, no, it's only going to pay out at 50. So companies are often doing this in practice anyway, um, but the point is, have they got the legal power to be doing it? Could it be challenged by an executive? So companies are reviewing their rules. Now this is hardwired into the code to ensure that they've got sufficient legal power on this point. Some companies think their rules already allow it, but others are updating their rules to make it clearer. So we've seen in the FTSE 100 report this year that seven companies disclosed that they have the power to adjust up and down. So positive discretion and negative discretion. And of course, the investors will be less keen on any upwards adjustment, um, while 22 companies disclose the power to adjust down. Um, And we've seen other companies disclosing that they expect to revisit this area this year. So we anticipate a lot more movement throughout the year on that. Thank you. And I think the third issue, which is I think a real significant change, um, is in relation to post-vest, post-cessation holding periods for shares. 
Yes. So another um, key change is the requirement to hold shares after the executive has left employment. So the new code now states that remuneration committees need to have a formal policy for post-employment shareholding requirements and that this should encompass both vested and unvested shares. So this means executives need to hold set levels of shares after they've left their role at the company. And the IA principles have then built on what the code has said here and fleshed out what best practice might look like. And um, This is one of those where the code have put a requirement in place. The IA have built around it, but I think it will be one of those where really the market end up deciding how this looks in practice. So the first thing that the IA have given guidance on is duration. They've said that the executive should continue to hold those shares after leaving for at least two years. So most companies didn't have a post-cessation holding period before now, before this requirement. And even those that did, I've got one or two clients that had it, it was only for a year. Um, One client had it for two years, but it was reduced to 50% in the second year. The IA have also given guidance on the number of shares that need to be held so that 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 holding period applies to. So they need to hold this, um, this requirement will apply to all the shares the executive holds at the time of leaving, or if it's lower, the number of shares the executive was required to hold immediately before leaving. So if they had a 200% of salary shareholding requirement, they'll need to, and they'd already met that, they'll need to keep holding those that 200% for two years. If they hadn't quite met it, they'll need to carry on holding that number of shares for two years. There's also some guidance on um, what can count towards uh, these limits in terms of vested and unvested shares, so a bit of clarity there. Um, so that shares that haven't yet vested can count towards these limits, um, but they can only count when they're no longer subject to performance conditions and they only count on an after-tax basis. Um, some uh, executives are quite pleased that there's this slight um, change there that shares that haven't vested can count towards those limits so they can meet it sooner than they might have previously. So remuneration committees are going to need to think about this requirement and they need to disclose the structures and processes that they've put in place to ensure that this post-employment shareholding requirement is being met. So this is where companies are grappling with the practicalities of implementing a retention into their documents. A lot of our clients are doing similar to we said on Malice and Corbett, they're having a standalone shareholding policy. Um, But you have to remember that this requirement applies beyond your share plans. It applies to all the shares that the director holds, not just those that they receive under an award of a share plan. So in drafting the policy, you need to think about what mechanisms you're going to use to apply this to shares that they already hold. Um, Perhaps you've already got a shareholding guideline policy in place and you might be able to incorporate this post-termination shareholding requirement into that shareholding policy or if not, you might want to draft a new policy. And then thinking about your process, you need to think, how are you gonna make this legally enforceable? Now that is a challenge. Are you going to include it again as a click and accept document? Um, Will it be a term of future awards through that grant process? Even then, there could be some enforceability issues in terms of challenging what loss the company has. Is there actually a breach of contract there? What if, for example, the director gets a new job somewhere else as a competitor and one of the stipulations there is that they can't hold shares in a competitor, but their last employer is telling they've got to hold shares for two years. So 
lots of challenges that the market are going to come have to come up with a solution for, um, but certainly something to start thinking about. And in terms of timing, when you need to achieve this by, the IA have said at the earliest opportunity for all new and existing executive directors, and at a minimum by the next remuneration policy vote. So anyone that's going back this year definitely needs this in there, um, because the IA have said they'll amber top any new policies that don't comply with this requirement. Um, We've seen a dramatic increase in our FTSE 100 report already of companies applying this in some form. So 28% of companies stating that they have post-employment shareholding requirements now and 48% disclosing that they're going to be reviewing these provisions throughout this year and reporting on it or voting on it next year. Thank you, Carlos. That really is a huge change, I think. And, and as you say, vital to remember that this isn't just shares within the share plan. It's, it's, it's all the shares yes. that the executive holds. So um, in practice, how are most companies enforcing the new post-cessation holding period? Yeah, I think that is one of the biggest challenges to work through. And I don't think there's a kind of definitive answer to it yet. But what we are seeing... Um, most companies do because even if enforceability could be challenged the main thing the company needs to do is protect themselves that they try to make it as enforceable as possible show that they've got a process that they have followed so most are doing that by drafting this standalone shareholding policy which includes the post cessation requirement asking for that to be clicked and accepted as part of future grant processes so protecting themselves as best they can Um, Companies that haven't got one are also considering the benefits of kind of a corporate nominee account. So where where the company can see and monitor where the executive shares are, how many they've got, etc. So we're also seeing more interest in having one of those products if they didn't have one before. And does the post-cessation period also apply to retirees? Yes, there's nothing um, in the code that says it shouldn't apply to retirees. So it's all levers. I think some executives will find that quite difficult. They'll feel like they've done a good job for a long time. They're retiring. They might want to release the value of their shares. Um, What if those shares drastically decrease in value the next two years because the new executive isn't very good, but they've had to, you know, they haven't been able to sell them. So Mm. you might get some pushback there. But yes, I think we can um, have some sympathy for executives. But I think the the view is that um, they shouldn't be exempt from the requirement just because they're a retiree. Thank you very much, Carla. We can see some really significant changes coming through then in the corporate governance arena. So I'm just going to bring uh, Tristan back in now. Tristan just got a few questions with reference to our specific client base and some of the issues which we're looking at with our clients at the moment. Tristan. That's great. Thanks a lot for that, Lindsay. Okay, Carla, um, having um, heard you run through uh, the various topics and items, Sarah, I just wonder whether we could take uh, or spend a few moments just running through uh, what you touched on briefly regarding pay limits, dividends and nominees um, and how you're seeing those um, sort of span out. Sure, yeah. So I touched on pay limits um, as one of the topics that the Corporate Governance Code covers, but I didn't go into too much detail. Um, So yes, there is a requirement in the Corporate Governance Code to consider setting a pay limit of kind of overall quantum of remuneration. But in terms of a trend, we're not seeing our clients do that. Um, I think there's concerns at setting a limit. How can you get that limit right? You don't want it too high to upset investors. You also don't want it too high so that potential recruits, new executives come in and demand that they're paid at the top of that limit. So I think um, whilst 
limits will be in the mind of um, REMCOs when they're thinking about overall quantum, actually putting one in the policy and hardwiring themselves to it isn't the trend we're seeing. And then the dividends point, that's a good one. So um, most clients' plan rules allow them to settle awards and dividend equivalents in cash or shares. And usually the reason they have that wording in there is if there's a country that they operate in where share settlement isn't possible, they've got the flexibility to cash settle. But the fear of investors is, is that this wording is being used to cash settle awards everywhere or to anyone, including to executives. And obviously, investors want executives to be paid in shares and only shares. So they've put this requirement in the code to make it clear that awards should only be settled in shares and dividend equivalents should only be settled in shares. And so even if your rules allow you to, you should ensure that in practice, you are only share settling those for your executives. And then the nominee point that you mentioned. Yeah, the reason I touched on the nominee was because um, in terms of the post-employment holding period, we're seeing a lot of companies um, that haven't got one think about having one to aid the enforceability of that requirement. So um, yes, you don't have to have one, but if you haven't got one um, and you're asked to enforce clawback, for example, during the period where the executive should be holding shares post-employment for that two-year period, and you're not able to because you don't know where those shares are, that won't look very good when it hits the headline. Whereas if they're sat in a nominee, that you can instruct the nominee to block that executive from being able to sell whilst that investigation goes on, then um, the company have done the best they can to protect themselves and they've got the upper hand. The executive would have to sue the company rather than the company having to sue the individual. Thank you. Um, The other question I've got um, surrounds the focus of this all being on FTSE 100 companies and I just wondered what you're seeing with regard to the wider market uh, beyond the FTSE 100. Yeah that's another good question. So the corporate governance code itself um, applies to any company with a premium listing in the UK So that's not just the FTSE 100, that includes FTSE 250, FTSE 350, so any premium listing. That doesn't include AIM, so that's one distinction. Um, AIM aren't within the Corporate Governance Code, although, of course, the Corporate Governance Code globally sets a standard for best practice. Corporate governance around the world tends to follow UK corporate governance. Um, So those in AIM or thinking of moving um, to the main market should always have an eye on what's happening in terms of wider corporate governance and best practice. And in terms of our review, um, yes, we did focus on the FTSE 100 for our review. So the stats we're giving are the FTSE 100. But I think the direction of travel is exactly the same. So I'm meeting with clients in the FTSE 250, FTSE 350, having the same conversations, putting these um, requirements in place because they also have to comply with the code. Good. And if someone did want a copy of the report, um, is there a preferred way for people to request that from you? Sure, yeah, you could either email myself or contact yourself um, if they've got your details and we'd be happy to share the executive summary of our report that sets out all the key statistics um, and in four pages you'll have a good feel for what's going on in the market and the direction of travel. Good, thank you. Thank you, Carla and Tristan. So just to wrap up, um, I was going to ask Carla if you could summarise, obviously a lot of information here today. Um, Thank you very much for sharing your expertise and Tapestry's expertise in the corporate governance space. Um, In terms of the changes we have discussed, what would you highlight as the key takeaways and action points for companies to be really thinking about now? 
Yeah, that's a good point. So of course, everyone has lots on their to-do list, but I think in terms of the key things you should focus your mind on, you should be reviewing your malice and clawback triggers. Are they still fit for purpose? Are you going to consider adding corporate failure, the new one, as an additional trigger? Are you going to consider whether you need a separate malice and clawback policy? So stripping out all of that detail from your plan rules and having that in a standalone policy that covers that requirement. Um, consider also if your discretion provisions need reviewing, so allowing you to make these adjustments to override the formulaic outcomes. Consider whether your post-vest and post-secession holding periods are um, in line with what the code requires and how you're going to enforce those. So will you have a separate policy? Are you going to look at getting a nominee? What is your plan? And then regularly evaluate your processes. So it's great having all these documents in good shape, but you also need to make sure your processes are following what you've set out in your documents and keep that under regular review. They'd be my key takeaways. Thank you very much. So thank you also to you, our listeners. Hope you have enjoyed this podcast on corporate governance. Um, Do get in touch if you'd like more information, uh, either with ourselves or with Carla. Um, We're also all on LinkedIn, I believe. Um, And please stay tuned for the next Link podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Check out the podcast description for more information on this episode's guests and presenters. And if you want to get in touch with any of us, we'd love to hear from you.